0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics Podcast for January 12th. Canada finally addresses accusations of genocide against Israel. A panel of foreign affairs experts weigh in on what we can make of Canada's stance. Plus, The U.S. and the U.K. launched dozens of airstrikes across Yemen in retaliation for months of Houthi attacks on Red Sea shipping. Can we expect the militant group to retaliate? And the Friday Power Panel digs into the government's housing challenge and warnings two years ago that immigration could drive up prices. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says his government supports the United Nations top court, but that doesn't mean it supports the premise of the genocide claim brought by South Africa against Israel.
0: Canada right now is directly engaged in at least five different cases at the ICJ because we believe in the importance of that as an institution. But our wholehearted support of the IGA and its processes does not mean that we support the premise of the case brought forward by South Africa.
1: In a statement today, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie echoed the Prime Minister, going on to say, "...we will follow the proceedings of South Africa's case at the International Court of Justice very closely." This statement comes after days of questioning about where Canada stands on this case. Hearings in that case continued in The Hague today, where Israel rejected what it called grossly distorted allegations of genocide. South Africa made its case yesterday, accusing Israel of genocidal intent in Gaza, accusations that Conservative leader Pierre Poiliev called a shameless attack against Israel.
2: I find it incredible that these countries have not accused Hamas of genocide. Of course, because this is not about genocide, it is about shamelessly and dishonestly attacking the Jewish people and the Jewish state.
1: Okay, to break down Canada's response, I'm joined now by Louise Blay. She's the former Canadian Deputy Permanent Representative to the United Nations, and I also have Roland Paris. He is the Director of the University of Ottawa's Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, and he previously served as a Foreign Policy Advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, Nice to see you both. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, Louise, I was waiting for this statement to come out to give me explicit clarity on where Canada stood, and I still have some questions as to what Canada's position is. What, what do you make uh, of the statement from the government today?
3: Well, I think it was a very balanced uh, statement. Probably came a little late, but it basically says, look, the ICJ is an international body that we respect. We don't believe the premise, but they're, the government's leaving the door open to accept potentially a ruling by the court that would go against the initial position of canada so it was balanced it was well calculated probably came a little late well roland how do
1: you see it because while they say they don't accept don't necessarily accept the premise of south africa they don't explicitly reject it either how how do you read this yeah
4: yeah david I, i i noticed that too i mean for starters listen they're There are plenty of reasons to find the situation in Gaza appalling, but one can find that appalling and also be appalled by the idea of accusing Israel of uh, having a policy of exterminating the Palestinian people, which is essentially the charge of genocide. I'm glad the government said that it did not necessarily support that premise, but as you just pointed out, it's a curious phrasing because it goes on to say, you know, the threshold of evidence is very high. They didn't reject the premise. They said they don't necessarily support it. Germany today said there was no basis whatsoever, Germany, mind you, for this allegation. So uh, Canada's statement was not as clear as that.
1: So, so Louise, on that, what do you make of, of sort of the absence of an explicit rejection? Why do you think Canada... Cho- I, I know Cam- Canada is always a champion of multilateral institutions, and I, I understand that motivation. But but why, why do you think they f- chose not to explicitly reject the allegation?
3: Well, it it definitely was a middle ground approach. It it's, it sits in between uh, a France, for example, that basically say they will they will await the decision of the court without qualifying it any further. And yet, on the other hand, we're not condemning the uh, the accusation as completely baseless so the, the language is very well carefully drafted clearly we get a sense that the government is under enormous domestic pressure and as well as, as international um, South Africa is a member of the BRICS uh, there are geopolitical movements around the world Canada is trying to position itself to be able to you know get along uh, as you heard, the minister has talked about a pragmatic foreign policy. So I think what I'm reading into the statement is that it is it is really a middle ground position that perhaps was there to please everyone, but will not please everyone. Will please will please no one? I think, and that's really in a way that's the UN. Um, when you d- when everyone is unhappy with the decision, it's usually a good sign. So it means that you've had a compromise, and I think it was a compromise today.
1: Okay, I, I want to turn back to what you, you, you said about uh, domestic considerations in just a second, but first, Roland, you, you, you mentioned Germany. Uh, uh, Louise has mentioned that you know Germany came out, uh, they're going to intervene, and, and, and they, they oppose this. France says it's going to wait uh, for the decision, as Louise said. The Americans have obviously dismissed this, and the UK said it's completely unjustified and wrong, the allegations uh, made by South Africa. Is, is there any kind of risk here for Canada for being offside with the U.S., the U.K., on, and Germany on something as significant as this, or is this an acceptable deviation in diplomatic circles?
4: Well, people in the Middle East aren't waking up in the morning waiting to hear what Canada's latest statement is, but it's incumbent on us to think through these positions very carefully and take the correct position. This charge of genocide is scurrilous, and it should be called scurrilous. Now, that doesn't take away from the very serious considerations about Israel's response to the October 7th attacks. Uh, I think that there is there are strong grounds to suggest that Israel's response has been disproportionate. That's serious enough. But let's keep something in mind as we're thinking about geopolitics and South Africa and the BRICS, etc. South Africa is a country that never condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine. On October 7th, South Africa's official statement effectively blamed Israeli actions for Hamas's murderous rampage. So there's something going on here, and pleasing everyone might end up pleasing nobody, I think, as Louise said. But, you know, Louise, as, as,
1: as Roland just said, the Arab world is not lying awake wondering what Canada is going to say. But this was a statement that a lot of Canadians wanted to hear, right? There, there were big domestic uh, considerations and concerns that went into crafting this. How, how do you think that may have played into the position and, and the statement that the Canada put out today?
3: Well, I think very much you got the sense that the government took the time to hear from different constituency, uh, uh, constituencies, Sorry, <laughs> and I think they were really, they, in a way, probably they could have gone with a bureaucratic response a week, two weeks ago, with basically a legal approach to this. But this became political. It's clear, even in the Liberal Party, there are two different views on this. Um, I get the sense that they really took their time, they heard both sides and they decided to just uh, go with a, a very nuanced response. And as you read in the statement today that the minister put out, it's the reiteration of the policy. And we've seen this as well with the joint statement with New Zealand and uh, Australia. The government is going out of its way to really try to present to the Canadian Public as well as uh, the international community the fullness of our position and we're trying not to get trapped into saying yay or nay on Mm. any specific um uh step along the way
1: roland i know you're a foreign policy expert and that's why we have you here but i'm just wondering on that point how do you think that sort of the the diaspora politics and the domestic politics might play into you know when you're crafting a statement on 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 a key foreign policy issue like this one
4: well listen, I don't uh I don't know what the internal discussion was and I have no reason to doubt what Louise just said, which was that there was a lot of consultation, there was an attempt to find some kind of middle ground, but listen, sometimes governing is not just finding what the lowest con- common denominator position is. Sometimes it's saying This charge of genocide is scurrilous and wrong, and leadership is facing down elements within your own party who might think otherwise and just saying, listen, Canada's position is that this is wrong and we reject it. And I think this was an instance where it would have made sense for Canada to take a clearer position.
1: Louise, how do you think that would have been uh, received, had Canada done uh, as Roland? I, I'm assuming this would have been his advice, uh, Were he back in his old job as foreign policy advisor to the prime minister. How do you think a position like that would have gone over?
3: Well, that would have been, in a way, uh, that, that response would have been what the international community would have expected, given our track record of support mm. for Israel. Uh, that, that wouldn't have been a surprise. It would have been just what they, uh, they have seen for, for several decades now. Um, I don't imagine that it would have been a much higher price to pay internationally because that's where we've been situating ourselves. Um, domestically, it might have been a different story. I'm not a political expert, sure. domestic political expert. But, uh, but from the international community point of view, I think this is fairly neutral one way or the other. Um, I think it will be a long time until the rest of the international community feels that we've, we've moved on, on our positioning on Israel. We're fairly consistent. And these nuances, I don't think, will, will change their mind. But, um, but yes, I think can, for the Canadian public, it was probably, uh, I think, a little bit more nuanced in what they felt they needed to do politically.
1: Roland, uh, on that point, uh, how, Louise describes it as neutral. How do you think the international community will, will view this in terms of Canada's historic uh, position of siding with Israel and the Conservatives, for example, saying that flat-out rejecting the case brought by South Africa?
4: Well, listen, I don't think that this is a significant departure from Canada's position. Uh, It is supportive of Israel. It does say, even this statement says, effectively says that Hamas has genocidal intent Mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, that Canada doesn't accept that premise with regard to Israel. So it's just that, you know, this is a moment where I think you're seeing... Uh, a perversion of international law when there are real international law issues to be addressed in this conflict and the significant one is the extent to which Israel's response and its its actions in Gaza have been proportionate uh, there are international laws of war and i think that Israel has been resisting pressure from its allies including from the United States to calibrate its response it does have a right to defend itself that's where the attention should be focused not on these kind of scurrilous allegations that are frankly up they're offensive because it's it's accusing Jews of what they were subjected to during the Holocaust so let's focus back on on what uh, on what's real which is this question of Israel's behavior in Gaza in relation to the distinction and poor pur- proportionality, and dealing with the catastrophe that's taking place in that territory right now.
1: Well, yes, and, and just as a final point, both uh, Israel's actions in Gaza and the actions of Hamas are being looked at by the International Criminal Court, which is where those are dealt with. This is a, the ICJ is about state to state disputes, right? I mean, is, does that satisfy uh, that standard? That's correct. The Yeah,
3: but yes, that's correct. except.
1: Okay, Lu- Louise, sorry, Lu- Louise, then Roland, and then we'll wrap.
3: Yeah. Just just to jump in, no, absolutely. I think this is, I, I agree completely with Roland that, that you know, it is pushing it a little bit far to be bringing in uh, genocide um, accusation against Israel. But it, it is an attempt on the international community, the majority of the international community probably, to actually use the UN system to bring an end to the suffering of the Palestinian people, and mostly, well, the, civilian, the civilians. So this is, they're going after a decision, a provisional measure decision to stop, to put pressure on Israel to, if not stop, completely adapt its military uh, impact. Yes, then mm-hmm. there could be a, case that will take years. But I think the intent is more short-term at the moment. And this was one of the mechanisms that was open to the international community, and they've decided to use it.
1: No, that's a very good point. Uh, Roland, a final point for you.
4: Well, you know, two wrongs or three or five wrongs don't make a right. But wouldn't it be nice to see the same level of outrage from some of these countries about Hamas's behavior or about the slaughter of Arab civilians in other countries in the Middle East or about Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, it is curious and I think that those who say that Israel is subject to disproportionate strange attention in these matters that they have that there's something there but that does not take away from the fact that there, that there is something that is really disturbing taking place in Gaza, both of these things can be true at the same time, David. Louise Blay and Roland Paris, thank you so much for your time tonight. Appreciate it.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Well, on this issue, Israeli lawyers appeared at the International Court of Justice today to defend their country against accusations of genocide in Gaza. They said South Africa, which brought the case, has distorted the truth about the conflict. Margaret Evans has more.
5: The heated debate over Israel's military offensive in Gaza claiming territory on the chilly streets of The Hague outside the International Court of Justice. Rival demonstrations kept separate with court proceedings broadcast on outdoor screens as Israel answered the charge of genocide against Palestinians in Gaza being leveled at it by South Africa.
4: The application and request should be dismissed for what they are, a libel designed to deny Israel the right to defend itself according to the law from the unprecedented terrorist onslaught it continues to face.
5: The legal team accused South Africa of providing cover for Hamas, saying the militant group alone is responsible for the war in Gaza after its massacre of some 1,200 people in Israel on October 7th. They presented images to the court proving they said that Hamas hides behind Palestinian civilians.
6: Here you can see the IDF's Arabic Twitter account.
5: Saying Israeli evacuation orders were for their own protection. In Gaza, there were more funerals. The death toll now 23,700 according to the Hamas-run health ministry there. South Africa's justice minister says he's confident of their case.
7: We remain confident that the court has compelling effects from South Africa and the law is on our side.
5: South Africa is asking the court to approve a number of temporary measures needed, it says, to prevent the situation on the ground from worsening. William Shabas is a Canadian law professor.
8: All that South Africa has to do is establish there's a plausible case. And I think they've easily met that threshold.
5: Proving I'm, the genocide uh, allegation, he uh, says, will be more difficult and deliberations uh, will take years.
8: Whether Israel's intent was actually the long-term permanent displacement or destruction of the people of Gaza or whether it, it was rather uh, a much more limited military effort to eliminate a political uh, and military foe.
5: In a recent submission to the court on Myanmar, Canada joined other countries arguing for a broader definition of genocide. Margaret Evans, CBC News, London.
1: One expert on Israel's legal team says South African lawyers have used random quotes from Israeli officials that do not align with government policy. The United States and Britain struck Houthi targets in Yemen overnight. The Iranian-backed Houthis say five fighters have been killed in the strikes. The U.S. and allies had warned it was coming after weeks of Houthi attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. Now, witnesses in Yemen confirmed explosions throughout the country, and a senior U.S. official said they struck nearly 30 locations in Yemen using more than 150 munitions. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said Canadian military members played a supportive role in the planning of the strikes on Yemen.
0: Uh, Canada has long stood up for the rule of law and is actively engaged in exactly that. We uh, ensured, and we work as uh, all our partners did, uh, ensured that the uh, targets and the strikes were as uh, precise and and specific as possible in terms of degrading uh, the Houthi military capacity.
1: Thomas Juno is an associate professor at the University of Ottawa. He previously served as a Middle East analyst for the Canadian Defence Department, and he joins me now. Tomas, good to speak with you again. Thanks for having me. So these strikes, they were meant to send a clear message to the Houthis that they can't keep targeting vessels in the Red Sea. Uh, do you think the message got through?
8: No, uh, I don't think the message got through. And among Yemen watchers, I don't think anybody thinks uh, the message got through. And, and I have to assume that the U.S. knows this. Um, you know, the, the Houthis are... Uh, uh, very much used to being hit by airstrikes. They've been under airstrikes by Saudi Arabia for almost uh, nine years now, since 2015. So their military capabilities are really spread out throughout the country. They are, uh, you know, you, they are disseminated, they're diffuse. Uh, and if anything, so this will not significantly hurt them. Uh, And if anything, it will embolden them because part of the Houthi identity is built on this narrative of resistance against the U.S., against Saudi Arabia and Israel. So this reinforces that narrative. So this, if anything, is something that the Houthis were hoping would happen.
1: It's interesting because the Houthis are calling this foolish and treacherous aggression by the U.S. and its allies, which includes Canada. We had a logistical and support role in this. But British officials have reportedly said no further action is planned for now. So, I mean, what do you make of that move to sort of move back to a defensive posture?
8: Well, I think the U.S. and the U.K. are 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 very keen to avoid escalation. Uh, they don't want this to spread further. So this is meant to be a message to the Houthis um, to say we have done it, we are able to do it, and we are willing to do it again. So they are now telling the Houthis the ball is in your camp and to see if the Houthis will hit uh, shipping in the Red Sea again. If the Houthis don't do it, uh, then there's no need for the US and the UK to strike again. If the Houthis strike again in the Red Sea, which I think is is quite likely, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but in the short to midterm, then the US and the UK have signaled that they would simply do this again with the hope that at some point they will force the Houthis to change their calculus.
1: The, the most recent number we have is that the US officials are telling American media that- that they hit just under 30 targets, what they call targeted strikes, against Houthi-controlled areas. Well, what do the locations and the nature of the strikes tell us about the strategy in this?
8: Well, some of them were predictable, but some of them are are interesting. Uh, The predictable ones are, in particular, the maritime installations that the Houthis have been using to launch these attacks on Red Sea shipping. So where they park some of their boats, some of their surveillance sites, radar sites... Uh, some of the sites from where they have been launching shore-to-sea missiles. That was predictable, and, and you can obviously see the, the logic behind that. The, the other thing that is a bit more surprising is that the U.S. has hit a lot of sites inland, so not on the, the, the western coast on the Red Sea, and in particular, sites where the Houthis have been building and manufacturing and assembling weapons. So this is interesting because the message here is to try to degrade Houthi capabilities. In many cases, these are manufacturing sites that the Houthis have built Uh, thanks to Iranian assistance, Iranian technology transfers, Iranian uh, transfers of know-how, Iranian advisors have helped to to build these sites and run these sites. Uh, So that's a bit more interesting, because here the message is to the Houthis, not only do we want you to stop these attacks in the Red Sea, but there's an interest in degrading their broader capabilities.
1: Do do you expect retaliation? Uh, I I know we've seen some shots coming back and forth, but not on a massive scale. Uh, Like like the big attack from a couple of days ago that that the Houthis launched in the Red What kind of a retaliation do, do you expect here?
8: I do expect a retaliation by the Houthis. It could come very soon. It could wait a bit. It could wait a few days for the Houthis to plan something. Uh, among the possible Targets for retaliation, there is very simply shipping in the Red Sea again, that is clearly a, a target. It could be Israel again. If you go back just a few weeks, the Houthis were sending missiles and drones on Israel, which itself was a very much of a new and, and, and quite shocking uh, development. Militarily, the threat to Israel was very limited. I mean, Israeli air defenses could intercept these quite e- easily, but still the message was pretty strong. If things escalate just a bit, uh, one option for the Houthis is either to target American military bases or infrastructure in the Persian Gulf, in the UAE, in Saudi Arabia, uh, elsewhere... And at some point, what the, the, the Houthis could do is to hit directly Saudi Arabia and the UAE. This is something the Houthis have done in the past, and that, that gives the Houthis significant leverage on Saudi and the UAE, because they really want to avoid that. So here the intent for the Houthis would be to pressure Saudi and the UAE to pressure the, the Americans to stop.
1: When the Houthis uh, you know first started the, their sort of military involvement in, in the region, you know, since the, the Israel-Hamas conflict began, uh, we've talked a lot about how this could potentially lead to the the widening of this conflict with the Houthis, with Hezbollah in Lebanon, and of course Hamas in Gaza. Russia and Turkey have condemned these strikes, worrying it could lead to escalation. I wonder, are we already now, at, at the beginning, at this low boil point uh, of a regional wider regional conflict?
8: Uh, I don't think so, and I, I don't want to sound optimistic, because the situation is bad and it's difficult and it could get worse. But... You know The, the Houthis are 2,000 kilometers away from Israel, so the calculus for them is completely different than it is for Hezbollah, as we've talked about on your show a few times. On the Hezbollah front, Hezbollah and Lebanon want to avoid all, all-out escalation because they share a border with Israel. Uh, so in a case of escalation, it's all-out war. The Houthis are 2,000 kilometers away from Israel, so the, the escalation possibilities here are, are quite different. These two wars, in a way, are linked in the sense that the Houthis used the war in Gaza as a pretext to do what they've been doing. But in many ways, this is a different conflict. Uh, this is a war in Yemen that has been going on for years. It is not resolved. It is far from being resolved, and it is not going to be resolved. So the link is one of timing, but, but the fundamental dynamics behind what's going on with the Houthis are very much different from what's going on in Gaza.
1: We've seen the U.S. announce further sanctions on Iran. I think the U.K. is going to make that move. Canada not yet indicated whether it will follow suit or not. Uh, What do you expect Canada to do here? And do you think Canada could face some blowback for its role in these strikes? I doubt
8: that Canada could face blowback uh, from the Houthis for these strikes. I mean, we're not on, on their list of concerns. We don't have a lot of assets within a 2,000-kilometer radius from the Houthis anyways, whether it's military bases, businesses, and, and so on, military ships. Um, we're simply not on, on their radar very much. From a Canadian perspective, what is what is interesting is uh, that we are part of the coalition. When the U.S. built this maritime task force to, to you know, counter Houthi efforts to disrupt shipping in the Red Sea. The U.S. wanted this to be, and it wanted it to be perceived as multilateral, not as a unilateral American thing with only the British. So the U.S. has been emphasizing a lot the fact that this is a coalition of of about a dozen countries. I expect that this number might increase. Most of these countries don't contribute ships. Uh, Only two of them actually contributed airstrikes on the Houthis and missile strikes on the Houthis yesterday. But for the U.S., what's important is that others, including Canada, are there are part of the coalition, and politically support, even if materially our support is absolutely minimal.
1: Thomas Junot, you know, always good to speak with you. Thanks for joining us again today. Thank you. Canada's armed forces are losing their top soldier. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced today that General Wayne Eyre is retiring as Chief of Defence Staff this summer. Eyre was promoted to that rank in 2021. He replaced Admiral Art MacDonald, who stepped aside due to an allegation of sexual misconduct. Before that, Eyre served as Commander of the Canadian Army, and over the course of 40 years, he was posted in Cyprus, Croatia, Bosnia, and twice in Afghanistan. In recent months, Ayr has been vocal about his concerns for Canada's security. He says there is much to do to get Canada's military in a state of readiness. Air's retirement takes effect this summer. <music> the Prime Minister is on the defensive and opposition leader on the attack over Canada's immigration levels. That's after a report this week the government was warned two years ago that bringing in too many newcomers can make housing even more unaffordable
0: construction workers and availability of labor is uh, a challenge we're facing, which is why we continue to have ambitious immigration targets. But we need to do it in such ways that we are able to get them into the kinds of jobs where things are needed and uh, solving the challenges that we're facing.
2: Common sense conservative gar- uh, conservatives will get back to uh, an approach of immigration that invites a number of people that we can house, employ and care for in our health care system.
1: All right, we're going to discuss all of this with the Friday Power Panel. Mia Rapson is a parliamentary reporter with the Canadian Press. The Globe and Mail's Kelly Kreiderman is in Calgary, as is the CBC's Jason Marcusoff. And here with me in studio, Marie Vastel is an editorial writer for Le Devoir. <laughs> Good to see you all, gang. Uh, well, Mia, this is a Canadian Press story that started all of this <laughs> based on access to information documents. What, what did you make of what we heard from the two leaders there today?
3: The,
2: I mean, it's pretty straightforward from Polyev. He's been attacking the government for months, if not longer now, uh, particularly on housing and saying that they are doing nothing uh, to, to, to solve that problem. Uh, the prime minister, you know, as he often has been known to do, maybe just, you know, he said words that didn't always mean a lot or provide a lot of answers as to <laughs> what the problems are. Uh, I would argue that uh, this this particular report and this warning and the fact that they were told this a couple of years ago and we didn't know that uh, it really feeds into this narrative that the liberals didn't start acting on this housing crisis early enough. It's one of the biggest criticisms <laughs> I've heard from people they feel like they did not do anything about it uh or like as it started to happen that even in august when they promised that their cabinet retreat would be all about housing they had nothing to announce so for many canadians there there's almost a little bit of a too little too late and to hear now they were warned two years ago that things were, were not looking great uh, and that immigration was having an impact uh, it it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't help them fight back against that narrative.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, Kelly, certainly the, the political narrative is, is the feds took too long. But, you know, if you look at the uh, temporary, uh, the student visa challenges in Ontario, that's a Doug Ford thing that he made changes, you know, to, to Ontario colleges. And that's led to a big influx of people that's competing for housing. Municipality zoning has been a challenge. Uh, but what strikes me on this one is that, the Minister for Housing today was the Minister for Immigration back then. <laughs> and, and Sean Frazier's been tasked with fixing it was warned about this challenge. Uh, and, and this creates uh, a problem uh, politically for him, I think.
7: Yeah, it, it, is, it is fascinating because he has been more proactive on housing than the previous minister. But yes, of course, he has this background. And I think this is the year where uh the the non permanent residence issue and housing really hit together because of course, mm-hmm. yes, there has been concern about housing for a long time, but I think it's becoming increasingly clear it's because of uh a, a non permanent residence policy that leaves much to be desired, uh to say the least. I think Again, we've talked about this before, the, the need for workers, the idea that Canadians are welcoming of, of immigrants. But the fact that there are signs that this federal government had full control of the number of non-permanent residents and students coming to the country in August... Uh, CIBC warned that uh, the government's not keeping proper track because it's not uh, monitoring the exits of people properly. Mm. And I was speaking to uh, Federal Cabinet Minister Randy Bozano in July, and he told me we're getting a million. We need a million people a year, but if we did that, we would break the system. Now, Canada Canada's population is growing at over four hundred thousand people per quarter at this moment, and there's increasingly a sense that. The, the, the federal Liberals did not quite plan for this. And I, I don't think Pierre Polyev's position on this is clear either. He has yeah. criticized the Liberals on housing, but correct me if I'm wrong, what we just heard from him on uh, immigration policy, that's almost the most, we've, most details we've heard from him. He has kind of <laughs> studiously tried to avoid falling, uh, uh, criticizing immigration policy or falling into any... Um, any uh, any old tropes about Conservatives being anti immigrant So I, I think his position on this will have to become a lot more clear this year as well.
1: But, but Jason, in some ways on, on this, uh, look, th- th- there's a tension here because Canada does need immigrants to build houses but then it needs houses for the immigrants. So this the argument from the liberals is we needed to keep the immigration numbers high because we need the people to build the houses, yeah, but, but the houses didn't necessarily get built. The argument from the conservatives is that we're not going to let immigrants in unless we have houses for them, but then how do you build houses if you don't have the immigrants and skilled <laughs> workers to do it, right? So there is this. there wasn't a woman who swallowed a fly element to both of these uh, positions.
9: Yeah, It's tricky. I mean... It, it, I mean Two things hold true about uh, Polyev's stance. One is that he's in this advantageous position where he's not responsible at this point for setting targets or Im- or Im- Im- enforcing any reductions or clampdowns on um, students or uh, on uh, foreign students or temporary foreign workers. Um, the other thing he has uh, right now, though, is uh, he's able to say these things about um, the. The tensions on immigration and trying to reduce uh, immigration, control immigration, um, when he's just not uh, risking being some wacko conservative xenophobe trying to say this. He has um, bank economists. He has very many academics uh, saying the same thing. And it turns out um, officials in the uh, in the federal government themselves uh, warning Mm -hmm. about this. Um, So he has this for, and of course Trudeau. And uh, the housing and immigration ministers are correct in saying that, uh, you know, we've needed um, immigration. Um, they're also naturally going to not say, we didn't listen, oops.
5: Mm.
1: Marie, what's your take on this one?
6: I mean, this whole argument that we need immigration uh, for workers, yeah, for construction workers, apparently 5.5% of um, of immigrants actually worked in construction- uh, of immigrants in the past five years actually worked in construction in 2022 according to Statis- Statistics Canada. I don't think that proportion makes a huge dent in the housing, um, in the housing crisis. Uh, I think this is um, very detrimental to the Liberals because not only were they already accused of not having done enough, of reacting too late, now we're being told that in 2022 they knew that the immigration growth had already surpassed um, the housing growth and then they still increased uh, immigration targets for 2023 to 2025 which will reach 500,000 people. Yeah they capped it after that but there's still a a big increase that adds up over those years when already um, apparently we were at capacity. There's also and I don't want to say this is entirely on immigration there's also the fact when you talk to municipalities that more and more homes are uh, single households, uh, single people or single parents, so you need more housing. There's also that part in the equation. But I think what this memo uh, that the Canadian press um, got their hands on gives really gives the image that um, this Liberal government tends to take arbitrary decisions um, based on political will rather than sound public policy. And I can't help but think of another one, uh, where the Liberals lifted visas for um, Mexican travelers in 2016 after being warned that there would be, consequences is probably not the right word, but that there would be effects to that, and now they are considering, according to Radio-Canada, reversing that decision because, guess what, bureaucrats, bureaucrats were correct with their warnings. And you can't pile on these, these ins- instances where you take a decision contrary to professional advice um, and get the results that you were warned about.
1: So, so Mia, uh, clearly this is the big issue the Liberals need to deal with, and also I think the big issue they want to promote, because Fraser is, he is moving fast now. I, I mean, whatever he didn't do two years ago, I mean, there's some pretty profound rewriting of zoning laws in major Canadian cities. It's a lot of catch-up and the houses may not be built before the next election, but things are changing. Uh, but this gives the conservatives a big what about, you know, to, to to smack them with.
2: Yes, and on this particular issue, I'm not sure that, that they needed any more what abouts. <laughs> um, you know, Canadians are feeling this pinch. It is something that is dominating discussions. The, I mean, affordability in general, but housing is a massive part of that. And I would also point out one of the things that that memo said, not only was it, that immigration and housing were not necessarily uh, lined up anymore. It also pointed out that this idea that immigrants were going to come in to build the houses and the numbers we needed was also potentially not true, that Mm -hmm. there were were signs that that wasn't actually happening. So that that sort of, I don't call it a myth, but that statement or that belief has been consistently put out there by the government over the last two years that we need immigrants to build houses. When they were warned that that maybe wasn't the case, I have some questions about where they're actually getting that from and are they are they developing better programs to bring in the immigrants that we need to, to build the houses? What are their actual targets doing on that front if they've been warned for this? And we don't have a lot of answers about that. So it is not a good look for the Liberals and certainly not something that they wanted uh, to come out. I mean, they had another housing accelerator announcement today. They want all these good uh, headlines and, and positive announcements that, look, yes, we're finally building houses. It's happening. Uh, and, and this kind of thing really just sets them back.
1: But, uh, uh, Kelly, I I wonder if uh, this highlights uh, some of the concerns you've been hearing from uh, provincial leaders over the last couple of years in the business community that the mix of immigrants needs to change, right, Mm -hmm. more towards uh, a greater percentage of economic immigrants rather than focusing on family reunification and refugees and and, and those sorts of principles which are also core uh, to, to sort of the liberal principles.
7: Yeah, I think Canada will always have to focus on accepting refugees and family, uh, reun- reuniting families. It's super important. But you have heard even federal cabinet ministers talk about, uh, tweaking the program to make it more focused on, uh, skilled workers that Canada needs. But I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of big problems here. They do have to work with the provinces to a certain extent on this. And, you know, we've been hearing this week about, um, the financial troubles of post-secondary institutions. Post-secondary mm. institutions in this country that were hammered through the pandemic have been relying a lot on those foreign student tuitions. That's, that's going to be a big issue. But the, the overarching issue for the Liberals is that they've been focused on um, bringing in new people as a way to keep the economy going in a lot of respects. That's problematic. And <laughs> nothing is going to happen on housing quickly. Meanwhile, a lot of Canadians... New arrivals, people have been here for a long time, are going to see their mortgage rates increase still this year as mortgage, or sorry, interest payments increase as they renew mortgages. There's no certainty about an interest rate cut. We hope it happens. We don't know if it'll happen. This issue is going to continue to hammer away at them all year.
1: Yeah, Mortgage rates, though, are starting to bend back down. And and on that post-secondary thing, Some premiers have got some things to answer for on that. Uh, Capping uh, tuition and cutting grants is is not a good recipe for financially healthy universities uh, when you do it that way. Uh, Jason, quick final thoughts uh, from you on this
9: topic. What I keep wondering in all this is... Is the consensus going to still hold? I mean, Canada is almost unique in the Western world in its broad a, a support of immigration, lack of xenophobia. Um, as the housing issue festers, and as there are clear warnings, and so many people start agreeing, um, intellectual people, not just you know the, the old anti-immigrant types, um, that this is that immigration has posed some problems, and if the government doesn't um, deal with this in a sincere way. Um, does, does hatred and does anti-immigration become a uh, sentiment become a major force in this country, um, shattering uh, this consensus that has differentiated us positively um, from so many other countries for so long?
1: Yeah. Good point. Yep. Uh, scarcity creates tensions, and uh, that is going to be a challenge. All right. I want to thank uh, the Friday Power Panel for your input. Marie Vestel, Jason Marcusoff, Kelly Kreiderman, and Mia Rapson. Thanks so much, gang.
7: Thank you. Thanks.
1: That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening.